So I want to start this episode by addressing two arguments that I deliberately left unmade in the last episode. Um, the first of which will deal with uh, the nature of infinity and specific, specifically whether there can be such a thing uh, as an actual infinity or an infinite set or series of things which uh, exist all at once, or if it must, if infinity must uh, be uh, potential by its nature, that is always growing. And the other argument I want to make has to do with free will. Um, both are important for purposes of speculative theology, and um, I'm going to draw on the conclusions um, of both these arguments uh, later on, uh, most assuredly. So um, here's the first argument, the argument to do with the nature of infinity. Um, if we have an infinite quantity of things, uh, let's call it N, and N exists in the here and now, or it exists all at once in some kind of static uh, moment or interval. Um, the question is, you know, um, can anything be added to N? Because if something can be added to N, then that would seem to imply that, you know, N plus one is greater. Uh, uh, but how can a quantity be greater than infinity? And yet, um, if we cannot add anything to N, it seems like it's not as great as it might be if we did add something to it. Um, and you can kind of see this in the, the Hilbert Hotel paradox, where um, there's the hotel with an infinite number of rooms, and it's actually infinite, so there's no vacancy. You know, it's all there. It's all used up. And then someone comes to the hotel, and it's like, can I stay there? And they're like, oh, yeah, sure. Um, uh, but, like, what are they going to do? They're going to find a, a hotel on the end of the series? You can't do that. It's an infinite series. No problem. We'll just have the guests in room one move into room two, and the guests in room two move into room three, and so on. And the new guy can go into room one, right? Well, here's... It seems to make sense, but that's because actually they're allowing sort of time to move in this um, thought experiment. They're allowing reality to be dynamic as opposed to static. Um, they're allowing a number to be added to the series in effect. Um, uh, because the question is, in the beginning of the thought experiment, premise one, there's no vacancy. It's actually infinite all of the things exist at once. Was that true or was it not true? Um, because if you can add something to it, then it's not the case that all the things that might be added were there already. But if you cannot, then it's not as great as the quantity um, that might conceivably exist by adding one more. If, if there's no vacancy in the Hilbert Hotel, then it scarcely seems infinite. It seems finite. So, uh, although one can make sense of infinity as, as, as an ever-growing process, but an infinite totality seems like a contradiction in terms. Uh, 
Um, so this is uh, now regarding um, whether or not there can be an infinite regress of causes. In, in the last episode, I said no. And I said, because you can't have an actual infinity. And that's true. But I think even if one speaks of a sort of dynamic infinity an ever going quantity and seeks to base uh, uh, reality's explanation upon that regress, that's a non-starter also. Because if you, if you're, uh, you know, if you're counting down or up from infinity, you'll, you'll never get to where you're going. It'll never arrive. Um, and you know, that's basically the intuition behind, well, Langan uses it. Um, also William Lane Craig and his Kalam cosmological argument, I think is a perfectly sound intuition. And I think that's why Aquinas was right to reject the idea of an infinite regress. And we'll see later how, how this, um, this impossibility of a static or actual infinity, um, creates huge problems for any, any spiritual worldview involving reincarnation. Um, um, specifically as regards, you know, the quantity, the number of souls that exist. And you can always say, well, you know, everything exists at once in a way that you can't understand and psh, blows your mind apart. But at the end of the day, if we say something can't be understood, it's not intelligible. It can't, it can't be apprehended by the mind. And if, if we take Barclay seriously, then it can't exist at all. And, um, and we're really just saying nonsense and we're just covering metaphysically insufficient, uh, positions with some kind of, you know, uh, cloak of, uh, you know, impenetrability, you know, you can't understand it. It's too mystical and fabulous for you to, to understand, but I do because I felt it. Whoa. Um, uh, okay. <laughs> All right. Enough of that. Let's, let's go to, um, free will. Um, uh, now this is a very, very interesting topic. It's, you know, when I was younger, I, I thought that this should not be so hard. This is, this is probably an easy one and people just make it out to be more complicated than it is because they're really, really attached to having free will. But clearly we're just puppets in the, um, you know, dancing to the tune of uh, deterministic nature. And that's, that's how I thought when I was younger, but I've come to realize this issue really is subtle. It's really difficult. Um, but Langan has a, cool view on it. I mean, as you can tell, I have a very high opinion of Langan. Um, I, I can't really think of an instance where I clearly saw him make an error. Um, uh, speaking um, uh, theologically, philosophically, technically, not talking about his political views. His political views are extremely controversial, and um, uh, it's not my intention to go into those. Um, but um, uh, let's talk about free will. And go to Langan's view, which I think is really cool. Um, and, um, I think it's the view that makes the most sense. Um, so, you know, a lot of folks look at the debate about whether or not we have free will as a debate on whether or not the nature of reality is fundamentally deterministic or indeterministic. And it's really fascinating to me how long that debate can go on without closure, how hard it is to tell in this reality where you only get one shot at things, you know, things only happen once and you can never rewind the tape of time to see whether it would have happened differently. It's, it's, it's interesting to me how difficult it is to find out whether 
reality is fundamentally deterministic or indeterministic. Now, quantum physics, if we assume that it applies at every level of reality, um, uh, and not just the microscopic level, you know, some, some philosophers of science really look at uh, science or reality as sort of consisting of layers and, and the layers don't interact Well, they interact, but you know, there can be like these giant qualitative differences, you know, f uh, from layer to layer. And, uh, it, they, they just think that, you know, it can be like that with no explanation of how or why there are these glaring differences, uh, you know, between the micro and macroscopic uh, levels of reality. Now, some folks <coughs> look at macro reality as also quantum, but it's just that all the little probabilistic differences are kind of um, evened out uh, with respect to uh, uh, macro level phenomena. They're still, they, they look at questions of like whether a coin is going to come up heads or tails as um, uh, not 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 deterministic it's still indeterministic but the probability is just very close to one um uh you know given uh knowledge of a certain number of you know relevant factors uh inertia initial you know torque or whatever at which it was flipped i don't know very much physics um uh, in case that's not obvious um uh so anyway so some folks Look at that. Look at macro level phenomena as still fundamentally indeterministic. It's just that the probabilities for certain questions are at least a lot closer to one, whereas at the quantum level, they really might be like 50 50 or 70 25. Um, and I think that view makes sense. Um, but the question is whether ultimately, uh, let me back up. Um, the indeterminism-determinism debate um, has been judged not to really matter for free will by some uh, uh, philosophers. And I used to be really persuaded by this view. Um, the view is that regardless of whether uh, the basis for human action is deterministic or indeterministic, um, or shall we say more precisely externally determined, or um, fundamentally indeterministic and therefore random, uh, in neither case is it possible for us to have free will, because free will is compatible with neither of these things. And um, I, I don't know of too many philosophers who really have uh, tackled this objection head on. I bet there are some, uh, just because of the enormous quantity of ink that's been spilled on this topic in general. I'm sure there's some people who have, who have addressed it, but I'm not very well read, so I don't know who they are. Um, but, but Langen, uh, addresses it. Um, and he addresses it in a very interesting way. He, he takes the focus off the individual human, uh, which in his writings, he calls us secondary tellers. God is the primary teller. We're secondary tellers and so are dogs and things like that. Um, which is, um, that's his kind of term, a teller, like a purposer, an ender. Um, he takes the focus off, uh, beings like us and puts the focus on ultimate reality slash God. And he asks the same free will impossibilist question. He says, is it externally determined or is it, uh, indeterminate or random? 
Do things happen in it for no reason, um, uh, as if by magic? And he rejects both of those claims. He rejects the first because, um, tautologically speaking, ultimate reality is all that is. And there's nothing real enough outside ultimate reality to <clears throat> affect or determine ultimate reality from without. Um, and yet, from within, there must be reasons and there must be explanations. Because uh, otherwise, we violate the principle of sufficient reason. Um, therefore, uh, he concludes that reality is determined, but it's self-determined, self-determining. And in one of his YouTube videos, you can listen to him give an explanation of how true uh, causation works. He describes it as being generative and therefore orthogonal to space-time processes. I don't fully understand what he means by that. Um, but for him, causation, real causation, meta-causation, if you like, as opposed to like spatio-temporal causation, and it has to do with the binding of a protean meta-substance um, that he calls unbound telesis. In case you can tell this guy Langan, whether you think he's you know real or if he's bullshit, he's really smart. Um, no one denies that. Um, uh, anyway, um, he, he, um, he, he views it as a matter of sort of the way in which purposive minds draw upon the, uh, unbound or unconstrained potential that exists, um, as a necessary part or aspect of ultimate reality and transform it into defined or constrained or limited, uh, uh, two-valued logic uh, reality. Um, and see, the thing is, you don't have to understand what he's saying or believe what he's saying. You can say, I don't understand it because no one can understand it because it's bullshit. It's like, okay, that's fine. But the, the negative force of his argument remains, even if you don't understand like sort of the positive case that he's making for, for like free will purposive causation. Um, the negative argument that he makes is ultimate reality cannot be externally determined, but if it's indeterminate and things just happen in it for no reason by magic, because that's what any, any, if you say something's fundamentally a matter of probability, there's no, no, um, amount of knowledge you can have where the calculus will be determinate. Ultimately, you're, you're speaking of causal insufficiency. And you're speaking, therefore, you know, of, of a remainder that is that is magic, um, and you can't have either of these. Um, reality doesn't make sense um, uh, uh, otherwise. It doesn't make sense, uh, you know, with with just um, indeterminate uh, so-called causes. It's like a, it's a contradiction in terms. So anyway, the upshot of Langan's um, argument is that if ultimate reality can be self-determined and we're sort of, what does he call us, endomorphic images, inward self-mappings, or, or in theological terms, uh, creations in the image of God, um, then we can inherit from ultimate reality this, this same property of being self-determined. Um, and... Um, so that's his argument for how free will can be. I think it's very interesting. Um, 
Um, I think he's, he's getting at aspects of the debate that, to my knowledge, no one else has really gotten at. Um, but you'll find that as we go on in this podcast, my view on free will is that it doesn't matter all that much. <laughs> and that sounds crazy, but, but, but this is what I mean. I mean, regardless of whether we're externally determined or we're random, or we have this kind of Langanian self-determinacy. What we do with our freedom, because it's always freedom of a kind, you know, as, as long as we're not, you know, being strapped, uh, hooked up with all these electrodes and forced by some mad scientist to do exactly his bidding, then we always have freedom in some compatibilist sense. Um, what we're doing with our freedom is we're always just trying to maximize utility. Um, we are optimizers of our perceived utility. We take inputs, um, we take knowledge, um, and with it, we're going to choose one thing. We're going to choose that one thing that we think most maximizes our utility. Um, and then that raises a question of whether uh, the maximization of utility depends upon facts which can be known objectively, or if it is somehow in the choosing um, that um, our, our choices are uh, uh, made either good or bad. You know, like in Milton's Paradise Lost, there is nothing neither good nor bad, but that thinking makes it so. Um, or Hume's uh, dichotomy between facts and values. So that's a third issue, which I might as well wade into now since I brought it up. I, I, I am convinced um, of the position that is called ethical intellectualism or moral intellectualism that is uh, similar to what uh, Socrates uh, meant when he said that no one knowingly does evil. See, here's, here's the ultimate question. If you have a choice between the right thing and the wrong thing, you may choose the wrong thing, maybe because you honestly don't know that it's the wrong thing, or maybe because you know it's bad, theoretically, propositionally, but experientially it hasn't been beaten into you yet that it's not the right thing to choose. Cocaine, alcohol, take your pick. Um, uh, but given the choice between the right thing and the wrong thing, which makes you happier? Um, as a matter of objective fact, or is it even a matter of objective fact, uh, which one will make you happier? Or is it simply that the one that makes you happier is just the one that you choose? And it, uh, the question does not depend upon external facts in any lawful or determinate way. And you know, Hume would really answer that, that you know, there's no description of facts that can tell you what you ought to do. You can't get, uh, a not from an is. I, I'm mystified by that view. I think it's simply wrong, and I always did. Um, how can one have a complete description of the world that leaves oneself out of it? That leaves out, uh, I mean, surely one's, one's values, as encoded in the neurology of one's brain, um, uh, uh, surely one's values are facts of a kind. And the facts um, 
that embody one's values do relate determinate, determinately uh, and lawfully to the rest of reality. You know, people have often said, like, I, I grant that I can't get an ought from an is, but tell me what your oughts are and I can tell you what you ought to, uh, I can tell you, you know, determinately or objectively what you ought to do. Um, and I mean, that's correct. Um, but who says oughts are different from ises? I, I think the intuition for this is something like, oh, some person likes chocolate and another person likes vanilla. There's no disputing taste. Well, it's like, um, you can't draw from this that, that tastes or preferences or values are not facts just because it's harder to, harder to predict who will like what or what will agree with whom. It's not as if these questions are uh, uh, unpredictable or uh, indeterminate in principle. It's just that given the limits on our knowledge, practically speaking, we can never really say for certain uh, you know, what state of affairs will really agree uh, with whom, uh, you know, even for ourselves. But I don't think this is any uh, basis for saying that in principle, um, there is any kind of hard dichotomy between facts and values, or that um, uh, what actually makes you happy is not a matter of objective fact. Now, to return to like, you know, the Socratic formulation, um, I think it was him, Acrasia, um, no one knowingly chooses evil. On the surface of it, that sounds mistaken. Like, I can think of a lot of times when I knew the difference between right and wrong, and I still did the wrong thing. But I think that in those cases, when we choose what's what we quote unquote know to be wrong, it's still because on some level we don't yet know it's wrong. We haven't, we know propositionally, thinly, abstractly that it's wrong, but we have not yet internalized emotionally uh, that it will have bad consequences for us. But once we do, um, then we will abandon it. And, um, uh, but for me, you know, uh, what it really hinges on again is this question of whether the right thing the moral thing, which in the end, in the limit, is like the most loving thing um, for everyone involved, not just oneself. Um, the question is whether that path objectively makes you happier uh, than the path uh, in, in which um, you do something less loving. And I have to conclude that it does. Um, more love equals more happiness, at least over the longest of, of time frames. And when God is in charge of, you know, who gets created and who gets sustained in being, there's no reason to suppose that in principle, uh, we are not uh, going to uh, exist over the longest of time frames. So again, casual arguments still, um, offending a lot of people um, who hold contrary views to what I have just by the sheer insolent brevity uh, with which I'm making my case. Um, and I'm probably boring a lot of people who don't know what I'm talking about. Um, uh, uh, not 
because y'all aren't smart, but because um, I'm referencing a lot of philosophers and things with which not everyone is familiar. Um, and we're not born knowing that stuff. And it's arguable how valuable it is to even know it. What do you do with it? You just end up, you know, ranting in a camping chair in your barely furnished apartment like yours truly. Um, uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, uh, but why did I get into this whole thing of acrasia and what have you? Because I believe that has implications for um, our ultimate destiny as souls that were created from nothing by God. I'm not what you would call, I'm, I am, I do identify as a Christian, but I would not identify as a Calvinist. Nonetheless, I think the Calvinists really do have one point uh, going for them. Um, I think they're right on the in the big picture of, of God's sovereignty. You know, people, theists, distinguish between God's permissive will and his positive will. There's what he really actually wants for himself, and then there's just what he's going to tolerate free beings uh, doing. He lets it, he lets it happen because he wants us to be free, but it's not what he would have done. Um, it's not what Jesus would have done. WWJD. Um, uh, but I think that if you are an omnipotent and omniscient being, and the last analysis, the distinction between these two kinds of will ultimately fades into meaninglessness. See, if I ordain that some reality should come into being, and I know exactly what's going to happen, and I could have done otherwise, then I am ultimately responsible for what happens in it. Um, and I think the same is, is, is uh, true of God. There is the classic um, sort of three premise uh, or trichotomy, um, uh, tr dichotomous, trichotomous way of looking at um, salvation um, and the ultimate destiny of, of all, you know, souls um, in Christian terms. And, you know, it's like the three statements are God is, number one, God is willing to save everyone. Number two, uh, God is able to save everyone. And number three is that God does save everyone. So the Calvinists, or what you might call the Augustinians, um, more generally, they deny that God is willing to save everyone. Uh, it looks like it. Sometimes in the Bible, he talks like it, or the apostles talk like it, but not really. Um, and the second one, uh, uh, Arminians, as distinct from Calvinists, um, uh, affirm that God is willing to save all, that all should be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth, um, but that nonetheless God is not able to save all for various reasons, despite his omnipotence, because of the freedom that he has gifted us with. Um, it's like, okay, that's interesting. And then the third are the universalists who say God does save all. And uh, uh, my best reasoning inclines me toward that view, However, um, Arminians and Augustinians would reject that view because they look at the scriptures and conclude that uh, really um, there's no way around the idea that some souls, maybe even the majority of souls, 
are destined to um, eternal torment and or destruction. I disagree with the Calvinists slash Augustinians uh, on the question of whether God is willing to save everyone because I think that uh, uh, God is because he loves everyone. Uh, he loves all of his creatures um, and uh, uh, destines them all ultimately to eternal life, including, I believe, the animals. Um, because it's easy for him to do. It's not like, oh, it's too much trouble. No, he can do it at a mere thought, uh, uh, with less than a thought. Um, and I disagree with the Arminians, uh, because I believe God is able to save everyone. Because I believe the fact that no one knowingly does evil means that in principle, every soul is salvageable, given the right educative experiences and sometimes it's not a matter of education like i gave you a book you learn you read the book you get the propositional knowledge from the book sometimes it's a matter of learning lessons from life and getting it beat it beaten into you experientially internalizing it with the years you know developing wisdom that sort of thing um but it's interesting to me to note how the more wisdom one has the more one is inclined to love god and so for God to directly beam wisdom into you would be for him to make your love of him unfree. Um, uh, but that's, that's, that's sort of a, a side note. You see, for a soul that ends up in hell, the, the question is, why did he end up in hell? If he chose the wrong thing, um, despite the wrong thing being objectively worse for his own happiness, than the right thing, then the only reason he could have chosen that wrong thing was fundamentally due to ignorance. And really, ultimately, whose fault is that ignorance, if we can call it fault? It's God's, because God is sovereign in the sense that he's the ultimate cause of everything, and he bears responsibility for everything. Um, except that I don't think that God has anything to answer for in the sense that in the last analysis, there's any decision over which he's going to be chagrined or embarrassed. I think everything he's done, um, he's done actually in our best interests, um, in a way that no other mind could have ordained or engineered. I mean, we're not as great or gifted or talented as we might be the way he has created us. But then again, if he had created more gifted and uh, more talented beings than ourselves, uh, uh, we would not have existed. Some other beings would have existed than us. God has ex extended the gift of existence to um, beings uh, uh, who are not in any way ideal, um, uh, but whom God nevertheless loves and loved before um, he created. So, uh, in a nutshell, I believe that uh, if someone goes to hell, it will be um, so that uh, aspects of their personality or their being, um, which are inconsistent with God's uh, purpose over the longest of time frames for us, which is that we become beings like him, beings that are capable of the highest possible enjoyment, namely uh, uh, ever-growing uh, uh, love uh, for for everyone, 
uh, God, neighbor, enemy. Hell is a place where we uh, uh, develop, ne we, where we form negative associations between the habits uh, that we had in life that landed us in hell or purgatory. I mean, ultimately, I'm not sure there's that much of a difference. Um, uh, hell is a place where we uh, form negative associations between uh, the bad habits that got us there um, and, um, you know, the, the consequences of, of those habits so that we can understand it's not even in our own self-interest. If all we love is ourselves, it's still not in our self-interest to behave with complete selfishness. But hopefully God will show us, even by the standards which we profess to hold uh in life, uh, that that our behavior was was wrong, was hypocritical, and injured people uh, whom we loved. Uh, even if we didn't love everyone selflessly or like a saint, it injured those people whom we did love. Um, and then that and and hell is a place where parts of us break down and die. Um, really, if you believe in Christ, sanctification starts sooner, and that process of death um, and, and burning away dead wood begins before death begins before hell but it happens to all of us sooner or later and you know if, if hitler goes to hell what comes out of hell is not hitler in some profound sense and so i think in that sense hell is a place of it's very confusing in the bible otherwise it's like why why do you have why are you talking about it it's it's destruction but no it's torment well which is it it's both and it will certainly feel endless, um, uh, even if you're only there for a moment. That's pain's way, if you haven't noticed. It, it feels endless. But but um, I'm not conceding that, that the Bible actually says that hell is endless. It says it's aeonios. It says it's ionios, um, which is a tricky word, but by no means necessarily means endless, even if that's the way that it's been rendered in English translations. This talk of hell reminds me of the uh, supposed near-death experience of Howard Storm, um, in which he uh, suffered, well, prior to his near-death experience, he suffered some kind of uh, perforated abdomen, some kind of medical condition which turned out to be fatal, um, but he survived. So, I mean, was it technically fatal? Uh, he, he was... Uh, medically or legally dead or, you know, whatever the terminology is for some period of time. And then he came back to life. So make of it what you will. Um, maybe there are just natural causes for that. I, I'm, I'm agnostic on that. But in his, in his experience, um, his near death experience, he first came to a place which he identifies with hell or, or some place that's, you know, uh, on the way over to hell. And um, there he sort of repents of uh, a, a lot of his life decisions and a lot of the ways that, uh, that he was. He described his behaviors in life as bullying, um, you know, selfish, mean, all that. And then in hell, eventually, he, you know, calls on the name of Jesus in prayer and is saved by Jesus. And then he claims that he had conversations with Jesus and Jesus showed him the future. And again, I'm agnostic on that too. But uh, what I think is interesting um, about that 
near-death experience is, is to me it serves as a very plausible model of how hell could be um, given uh, the fact of a loving God or the postulate premise of you know the assumption of a loving God um, and the assumption that no one knowingly does evil. Uh, in principle, no soul is unsalvageable after death. They just have to learn um, uh, certain things before they're ready to go on and continue evolving toward um, the perfection for which they were ultimately created. But near-death experiences are, are certainly a tricky topic because they don't all agree with each other. Let's let's just start start with that. I think they're fascinating because um, you know some some near-death experiences, those in which people report uh, sort of floating above their body and going uh, uh, out of their body uh, on top of the roof of the hospital, and then seeing things like serial numbers on equipment or like uh, uh, while still in the building or sneakers on top of the roof of the building that are later verified by other people, you know, uh, and, and people who are sort of medically dead and brain dead, as far as we can tell, but reporting incredibly vivid experiences, which they claim are more real than any they have felt in, uh, waking, um, or, or living, uh, life. Um, they certainly, uh, give a powerful empirical argument against uh, materialism. Uh, however, one can't really build the case against materialism on uh, near-death experiences because they just don't agree with each other. And um, to me, that kind of makes sense because the view that I have of God is one in which there's a veil or a scrambler, something which ensures that... Um, knowledge cannot be obtained about God uh, in a way that is not always open to some measure of doubt. And I think that if some kind of public and intersubjectively verifiable knowledge that was consistent from account to account were easily obtained of God, then um, God might already have made himself too obvious and, and might have violated the objectives that he was uh, seeking to fulfill um, by making himself uh, partially hidden. I alluded to that in the last episode. Um, I'm talking about it again now. I still have not taken that question up in sufficient depth. Uh, rest assured that I will. But um, so I, to me, it makes sense that there might be a veil or a scrambler such that, uh, you know, reports of near-death experiences will not all agree. They will not triangulate conveniently onto some uh, unified picture of what the afterlife is and who God is. Um, and so for that reason, um, I think we have to use reason uh, and, and be skeptical of them. Of course, if you take a biblical view, you're just going to, of reality, you're just going to assume that, you know, whatever contradicts the Bible is inspired by demons and that sometimes the Jesus uh, that people see uh, or the angels of light that people see are in fact the devil who sometimes comes to us as an angel of light. Um, and, you know, uh, that's your prerogative to do that, um, to take a biblical stance uh, uh, exclusively on near-death experiences. The problem is that if I argue from a biblical stance only, 
Um, there's going to be a lot of people whom I will never convince because they don't accept the Bible. Um, so it, to me, we have to use reason and critically evaluating near-death experiences to see whether or not they could be true. And a lot of near-death experiences speak of reincarnation. They speak of the purpose of this existence as uh, being a journey of the soul through multiple lifetimes um, uh, in order to learn various lessons, chiefly lessons about love. And um, to some extent, I agree. I agree with uh, this sort of analysis of, of why we're here, but I disagree that we go through multiple lifetimes um, well, this is semantic. Like if I die and I, I'm, I find myself in heaven in a sense, I have reincarnated, but the question really is whether or not, uh, there is persist persistence of memory and character. I would deny that, uh, I, I would deny that we lose our memories upon reincar upon reincarnating. And uh, it's because I question why it's necessary for souls to lose memories uh, when they reincarnate. Um, you might say, well, it's, there are some things you can only learn with an empty mind. Um, you've got to empty the vessel to fill it up again, and then you bring the vessel back up to heaven, and then you sort of add to the knowledge that's there. Uh, it's like, first of all, why can't people just learn it all telepathically from souls that are down here that are different souls? Um, see, the, the issue with, with the reincarnation is that it, it, it seems to presuppose that the soul is atomic, that it cannot be created or destroyed. And since new souls cannot be created, um, the only way of gathering new experiences is to reincarnate as the same soul in a different body. Um, like the alternative would be if you cloned yourself, um, and then the clone of you stays in heaven with all its knowledge. And then, um, you know, uh, the other clone of you lives a life on earth in ignorance and misery, but gets new knowledge from earth that you couldn't get in heaven hypothetically. And then at the end of the clone's life, it sort of comes back up and merges with the clone that's in heaven. And, you know, if you take the view that souls are atomic, they can't be created, then this can't happen. You can't just create a new uh, being de novo as you would when you just created a clone of yourself. But see, the thing is, if souls can neither be created nor destroyed, um, we have to ask, you know, is the number of souls infinite? It can't, it can't be, it can't be actually infinite. It can't be that they all exist at once. Uh, so, uh, it must be a finite number because it can't it can't grow as an ever uh, increasing series or sum. Uh, no souls can be created, um, so it's a finite number, and yet that seems to place a constraint on the number of conscious beings that can exist. Whereas um, ultimate reality has no external constraints. That's its main feature. There's nothing outside of it that's real enough to constrain it. And moreover, it just seems silly. To imagine that, you know, the world can intuitively, at least, seem to increase without 
bound and the number of creatures in it can increase without bound and yet uh, past a certain number of creatures created um, some of them will be unconscious because there just aren't enough souls to inhabit uh, those creatures that seems kind of dumb that seems like kitty metaphysics um, and so you know the alternative is okay let, let's say oh, I, I believe in reincarnation and um, I, but I believe it's possible you know to create new souls and I believe that yeah rather than temporarily lose knowledge um, uh, I just clone myself and my clone stays in heaven and um, you know the other clone goes on earth and lives a life and gets experiences for me um, the question is in what sense is this meaningfully like reincarnation anymore um, from the standpoint of the clone that was created um, uh, ex nihilo and which has no memory of its supposed past existence it, it can't even really meaningfully be identified uh, with its counterpart in heaven when you think about it there's maybe a loose characterological resemblance but um, other than that the biblical language of, of, of creation ex nihilo seems much more accurate um, in speaking of um, its genesis so why are these accounts of near-death experiences all speaking of reincarnation and really not speaking of it in a way where it's like um, uh, cloning is happening but where a soul which can't be created or destroyed has to continually put on new garments and take off old ones uh, in the form of uh, inhabiting new bodies and, and discarding other ones it, it seems in other words that the experiences that people have um, uh, uh, beyond the grave you know their near-death experiences are informed by rather childish metaphysics uh, and that leaves two possibilities the one is that um, is, one is I find kind of interesting um, it, it seems like a near-death experience is, is like whatever you make of it it's a little bit like a psychedelic psychedelic trip in that respect um, uh, and one possibility it seems to me is that maybe the afterlife is a psychedelic trip it uh, it is something which can be constructed um, open-endedly in whatever way one wants however if we're talking about an afterlife that's shared by multiple souls then we we can't really take this view because in order for uh, reality to be public communal intersubjectively consistent um, it can't be the case that everyone freely creates their own reality you know that's the problem with the law of attraction like what what's going on there like uh, I'm visualizing um, some rain for my crops but you know some billionaire is flying through the storm and he's visualizing clear skies and it's like whose reality gets to win um, you might say it's whoever wills it hard enough and get a little Nietzschean but uh, on the whole I, I don't find it very plausible but yeah still nonetheless maybe the reason why everyone has their own experience of the afterlife is that it's it's a little bit of a, a, a color your own experience thing it's it's um it's more in the nature of a psychedelic trip than it is some kind of stable terrain that you get there and it's the same for everyone now the other possibility is that the reason why uh, people's accounts of the afterlife disagree and, and they disagree in all kinds of ways like some Christians go there and it's like 
I went to, I saw hell and the people who were in hell were there forever. And, um, you know, and other people go there and it's like, there is no hell, there's no judgment. I mean, you know, other people have near-death experiences and they say, well, I found out there is no hell, there is no judgment, there's just love. And um, other people go uh, have near-death experiences and it's like, there's way more lives than just this one. You know, I have spirit guides who chose this life for me and, um, uh, it, by the it, like they chose this life for me so that I could grow and everything it, in this life happens so that we can grow. Um, it's all chosen in advance by ourselves. I, it, it makes hellish nonsense of, you know, the suffering of, you know, people in the third world or even in the first world um, who are abused and starving and different things like that. Um, uh, but that that's 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 a, a side note. So the other possibility is that maybe the reason why everyone's experiences disagree is that some people are deliberately deceived. That would be the Christian stance on any near-death experience, which does not seem biblical, including many would say uh, Howard Storms, uh, despite the fact that his near-death experience left him a very committed Christian, or so it seems. Personally, I'm inclined toward this view. Um, I think that we don't enter separate realities after we die. Um, reality remains communal. That is to say, ultimate reality remains one. Um, you can't have a bunch of uh, conflicting realities with absolutely no interface with each other, because then the fabric of uh, reality itself, which as Langan uh, has said, must be comprehensive, consistent, and self-contained. Um, the fabric of ultimate reality uh, itself sort of decoheres and falls apart. So it makes sense to me that we remain in a kind of a communal um, reality, uh, which therefore uh, must obey uh, certain syntactic uh, restrictions, which hold for everyone who enters it. That is, it's something more in the nature of a, I, 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 I suspect that the afterlife is something more in the nature of a stable terrain than it is like a kind of open-ended psychedelic trip. And if it is, then we must explain why, you know, not everyone's account of it agrees. And to me, deception is a very plausible explanation. Deception by whom? By the devil? By, by demons? Yeah, maybe. Um, you know, they're not necessarily a bunch of like red people with horns and tridents and things, but um, nonetheless, um, uh, such beings, I think, can exist. And when you look at books that are supposedly, um, supposedly inspired by, uh, like the books that are written by mediums, like uh, The Law of One, which was supposedly authored through a medium by an entity called Ra, um, the metaphysics in it are, are childish. You know, they involve reincarnation. They involve uh, something like divine simplicity as applied to ultimate reality as a whole. Um, and uh, therefore, they don't make any kind of sense. And they're not, it's not supposed to. Um, it, that entity, Ra, is always saying, you know, to your limited minds, it will not make sense, but it has to be that way. I am Ra. I have spoken, whatever. Um to me, this is a smokescreen. To me, this is not something which 
stands a chance of being true. This is something, this is a deception foisted on uh, uh, people. Uh, and, and, and the shape that it takes is just whatever the deceiving entity thinks that humans will find most plausible. That's the only criteria, that's the only criterion that's governing, you know, uh, the form that it takes. It's not informed by ultimate reality. I mean, one possibility with books like uh, The Law of One is that though they're claimed uh, to have been authored uh, uh, by some kind of, you know, non-human entity through a medium, they're actually just the work of humans. And of course, that's always possible. Um, to me, what's interesting is when you listen to the recordings of the woman who dictated that book, the, the gaps between the words are too great um, for her working memory, or so it seems to me, uh, to have held all those words together in sequence um, and, 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 and really uh, be able to make it all up on the spot. Uh, the spacing between her words does suggest a kind of uh, dictation or reception of a message from an external source. Now, it is possible that they just wrote it all out in advance and then staged that recording, right? Uh, that remains totally plausible. Uh, plausible. You can't you can't dis dismiss that out of hand. But the the recordings and the the nature of the of the text itself. Um, to some extent, give one the impression that it really is not of human authorship, but then the question is who authored it, if it's wrong. <laughs> um, and uh, so there, you know, deception makes a kind of sense. I think there there is um, grounds to believe in, you know, something like what Christians call spiritual warfare. Um, but uh, I'm maybe getting into... Uh, excessively deep waters uh, at this point. And I have reached sort of the 54 minute mark, which uh, seems to be some something like my magic number, uh, 13 times four, or that was 52, that was the last one. This is 54 minutes. Uh, uh, so anyway, uh, I'm, I'm gonna cap it off here. Uh, if you listened, thank you. Uh, uh, um, uh, until next time.